Spencer Balfour, Timo Nebraska. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his bi-weekly appearance. That is one of his appearances occurring every fortnight. Let prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com, Eric Longenhagen. Eric Longenhagen is the guest on this edition of the program. As he does every one of those two weeks, Eric Longenhagen here endeavors to analyze all prospects. Of particular note this time, the Futures game. Eric Longenhagen was at it. He has some observations to share about Alex Reyes, not only about how that Cardinals prospect recorded a 101-mile-per-hour fastball, but also some intriguing ways in which he was using his changeup, backdooring it, if you have to know. We also turn to the projections where one finds, for example, that Red Sox prospect Andrew Benintendi and Astros prospect Alex Bregman already profile as above-average major league hitters. This is what the numbers say. To what degree do those numbers resonate or not? with Longenhagen's own assessment of those particular players. Finally, we hear more from Longenhagen's transcontinental travels and are treated to this cry of help, which occurs only four minutes into the conversation. Honey, can you get me Can you get me a B12? Because Carson's doing things already that I just, I'm not prepared to deal with. There is no sponsor today. If there were a sponsor, it would be SeatGeek.com, but there is no sponsor, so we will get to the conversation without delay. What is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Who does the feature? Lead prospect analyst of Fangraphs, Eric Longenhagen. And when does it begin? Right now. Excited. Good, so am I. I feel like it's. I feel like. I feel like we're getting to know each other. I look forward to speaking with you. Yeah, I like. I like talking to you too. Yeah, is it okay for me to say just one yeah. man saying that to another man? We're 21st yeah. century men, Eric. Yeah, I'm totally comfortable with that. I had a friend who is a dad. He's my age. He's a dad, and uh, he and um, his wife, who's also my friend. They were with other couples who also are all dads and moms. I know I, this sounds very heteronormative. That's not the point I'm trying to make, Eric. What I want to tell you is they all have kids. Let me get together as couples because I think that's something you do because when you're a bunch of parents getting together and you all have kids, then the kids play together and you can behave like adults a little bit. You, does that sound reasonable so far? Yes. Okay. So <clears throat> after all the other couples had gone home, it was just – my friend, my two friends, and then their friends, right? Their hosts mm-hmm. or whatever, say. And then the husband from this one, we'll call him Eric. Okay. Um, that's not you, but we'll just, that's the first name. And the other one, my friend, we'll call him, uh, um, call him John Cabot. <laughs> we'll call the first one Amerigo Vespucci, and we'll call the second one John Cabot. Okay. okay? Yeah. So Marigold Vespucci, the host, says to John Cabot, my friend, he says, uh, we should uh, we should hang out just us sometime. But what he was saying, what Marigold Vespucci was saying, was just two, the two of us, two guys, hanging out out in the world. But what my friend John Cabot heard was, oh, so like instead of all of these couples and their children, just us two couples and the children. And so it, what it says that what happened later was the wife of Amerigo Vespucci needed to text message the wife of John Cabot to say what my husband meant was just the two men spend time together. So it's created maximum um, awkwardness. Yeah. 
And uh, but that's just something that happens as you grow old. It's difficult. Now listen, is it difficult being a man? In many ways, no. Uh, but one thing that uh, we are constantly dissuaded from doing is, uh, well, maybe you do a better job of it. I find it very hard, it face to face, to say, we are two men. Let's spend <laughs> let's spend intimate <laughs> time together. Uh, no, I I agree. It's uh, it's not. I don't have a like a whole large coffer of friends out here. Yeah. Because uh, it's just all the baseball stuff. So I, I spend most of my time with just other baseball people. And yeah, there's there's very few opportunities where you're actually making eye contact with somebody because you're always just sort of having a conversation while you stare at a field. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't uh, I don't have a whole lot of firsthand experience recently with uh, male social. Right. You you get enough of it. I mean, you get a certain How do you feel about acquaintances versus versus uh bosom friends? Do you like I mean, do you have a preference? Maybe that's a false dichotomy I'm creating, but I love I'll create dichotomies all day. I don't care. Uh <laughs> I don't know, that's a good question. <clears throat> that's probably one that uh is is difficult to answer objectively unless you really sit and have some introspection about it. Okay. Is, well, I'll, I'll give you know what. Maybe next week I'll be able to answer that. Well, I think we're, these are biweekly, is what I've told the public. Honey, can you get me? Can you get me a B twelve? Because Carson's doing things already that I just I'm not prepared to deal with. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know where they are. What do you take them intravenously? No. You can swallow a B twelve. Uh, yeah, I just I just eat them. I don't okay. even know if they take. I don't even know if they really work. Okay. I tell myself they do. Are you sick? No. <laughs> you have valley fever. No, but um, are you? Do you know a whole lot about that? Well, I know uh, what. There was a player who suffered from it rather badly, right? Oh, I didn't know that. Connor Jackson. Let's say Connor Jackson. Okay. One year, Connor. That's a real person, right? I'm. Yeah, I'm, the former the former Diamondbacks. He's a good hit tool. I believe he had a good hit yes. tool. Yes. Um, yep. Yes. One time futures game participant. If I. Oh, ooh, I like what you're doing there. I like what you're doing there. You mentioned the futures <laughs> game about which we will talk later. Just you know, I got to go by three. I got to go pick up a bath mat an hour fifteen minutes away. Not a bath mat, a front door mat. <laughs> okay. We'll talk right, about that. That's, that's. I think that's probably just as ridiculous. Yeah, I got to go pick up a front door mat. We, okay, well, we'll talk about that, but uh, I'm interested in why you have to drive an hour to go pick up a, a doormat. Yes. But yeah, valley fever is like a fungal infection that gets in your your lungs. Yeah. It's not, yeah, it's it's weird. He suffered from it. Um, yes, he suffered from it. He lost 35 pounds. Wow. According to the internet. Yeah, um, the fungi are found in like... Um, I think they're found in the in the dirt out here. It's not like an airborne thing. I think people, a lot of people think that it's something caused by the way the pollution. At least that's what I assumed it was for a while. Mm-hmm. Thank you, honey. Uh, because it's you know especially during the summer here, pollution just hangs low in the air and it's you know it's hazy and gross. Yeah, but, but well, perhaps because are, are there something like windstorms? Do you, not, you do not get windstorms there. Yeah, there are times when it's really, really windy. So maybe it's whipped up by the wind, and so yeah, it's maybe. temporarily airborne. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what? What's so special about this doormat that you're driving an hour? I think it's like a uh, 
I don't know precisely. It's it's made out of used lobster rope. Okay. It's made out of repurposed lobster rope, and there's a person in uh, there's a woman, I believe, in Cape Porpoise, Maine. Yeah. Who manufactures them in sort of an Etsy type situation? Yep. But my wife decided that uh, we could parlay it into an adventure, <laughs> so we will be driving to Cape Porpoise as an adventure. And I want to be clear about this. I'm not saying my wife either, like Borat, uh. nor am I saying it in the sort of Henny Youngman, Rodney Dangerfield way, or like, check a, take my wife, seriously, take her, right? I'm just <laughs> yeah. saying she is a person, she is a separate person from me. And sometimes she has ideas like this, and, and and that is what's happening. I think we can move on from the Borat, my wife. I think we've paid uh, sufficient homage. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I'm okay you're, with it. Yes. Uh, listen. You guys going to catch some Pokemon in Cape Porpoise? I don't know. I don't know what that means. But you I don't? know that I've, I've seen it uh, by way of various social media. Listen, oh. can we? Hey, listen. Hmm. I want to ask you. I want to ask you about the, every show starts. Eric Longenhagen. Yeah. In case you were not aware, where I I ask you what where you've been, you know, where you've been scouting. Well, it was just in San Diego. For yes, the you future were. Day. Yes, yes, you were in just in San Diego. And then I finished up my tour of the Northeast since we last spoke as well, and have been doing AZL stuff when I've been home and. That's basically been the extent of it. I'm working on getting up notes on all the Indians prospects I've seen during those travels now. What? Wait, why? Why Cleveland specifically? Because uh, I just saw a lot of their guys and just figured it was a good place to start. I have a little whiteboard in my office that has a list of all the stuff I want to write, and they're just I just wrote them first, so that's where I'm starting. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Just yeah, you know, I mean, is this so, just AZL guys? Or are you going? Are you spanning? No. No, it's ACL guys. It's uh, the players that were on the Lynchburg team that I saw at the Cal and Carolina League All-Star game, and then I again saw them in Wilmington a week later. And then uh, Futures game representative Francisco Mejia uh, and uh, Clint Frazier, those two guys, plus everyone on the ACL and Wilmington, or, uh, Lynchburg squads. Yeah, including one Greg Allen. Yes. Yeah. Certainly, including Greg Allen. Who I'm still. Do you know that? So you and I are in a bit of an adversarial relationship, um, and uh, and I'll explain to you why. I think you might. Well, you might have some sense of it already, but um, we have not fully. But but in part, this weekly column I write. Mm-hmm. Okay. It is called Fringe Five, Eric. I don't know if you're familiar with fan. I am familiar with it. Okay, and so what I will do is I will attempt to identify players of some note who right. are omitted from these various prospect lists, right? Right. They uh, don't fit typical scouting norms. They probably much. don't. Right. Right. Otherwise, they would have appeared in those lists. And 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 uh, we got Sickles over there. Johnny Sickles. Mm-hmm. He goes 175 deep on his list, and I think that his. He's like 175th guy is someone I would have I would have used. Maybe is it Jamie Westbrook? Maybe is it Willie Calhoun? Probably not Willie. He probably would have been up on the list. He probably right? would have been higher. Westbrook yeah. is a possibility though. Jamie Westbrook. Plus, plus makeup kid, Jamie Westbrook, by the way. Is that right? Yeah. He's a uh, he has some Arizona ties. Uh I've 
talked with a lot of people who've interacted with him, and everyone loves that kid. From your from your experience, if all right, so I, this was a conversation I would get into with Kylie sometimes, right? And I'm sure. not adversarial in this case at all on my part. But I he we discussed how sometimes those qualities which make a person which which facilitate happiness for a person, which facilitate positive human relationships for a person, mm-hmm. are not necessarily the same qualities which will make them a good ball player. And I think that, for example, we can point to one Leonard Dykstra. Yeah. <laughs> Leonard Dykstra, right? Um, uh-huh. If only because his, the example regarding Dykstra from Moneyball is a well-known one, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Dykstra, and then also his, um, his uh, various legal um, concerns following his career are also relatively well-known. I think we can say that perhaps Leonard Dykstra did not have all – he does not necessarily possess all the tools to have a uh, – to to um, find equanimity in his life, but they appear to have benefited him greatly as a ball player. He had no fear. Um, so when you say this about Westbrook – Right. Do you feel like you, so? You're saying everyone loves him. Is that like yeah? He's, everyone loves him, and he's a hard worker. Do, do you or just that he's got this glowing personality that uh, you know attracts people to him and nurtures interpersonal relationships with people who have to make decisions in baseball that might impact their objectivity? Well, that yes, that could be it. Or alternatively, when you say like love, do they love him as a ball player because he's because he's tough as balls or nails uh, or however. With Westbrook, it's it's a sort of a combination of a work ethic and personality thing. If I ever refer to makeup in anything I write, mm-hmm. it's almost always exclusively about the work habits uh, and sort of a general interest and uh, in baseball that's sort of um, visible even to the naked eye. You know, like there are kids out here for AZL who, when they're charting with some of the other players, you know, charting pitchers, that they clearly don't care. They're aloof. They're, uh, you know, doing ridiculous teenage things. And that's understandable because that's how old these kids are. And then there's some of them who you see taking meticulous notes and, uh, you know, their undivided attention is on their their teammates' mm-hmm. night work. And, you know, that's the sort of thing that you, you write down and uh, it's not necessarily all that impactful, I don't think, as far as evaluation goes, especially with the younger guys, because you're just looking at tools. But yeah, if I ever write about it, it's just about working to be a better baseball player. But if I talk about it, and you know, everyone sort of has, has a different definition of what it means, it's sort of an ambiguous thing. That's, and I think it's uh, potentially dangerous to just talk about it in a way that, you know, doesn't acknowledge that. <laughs> well, because another ball player um, who came up in a discussion regarding makeup, or questions, questionable makeup, or at least posed an interesting case study with regard to this question of makeup was Mike Matuella. Am I saying that anywhere right? Anywhere correctly? No, I think, yeah, Matuella. Matuella, sure, Michael Matuella, because <clears throat> uh, per Kyla McDaniel, and how trustworthy is he really? There were some um, – he had talked to some people who were concerned about him because perhaps he was too cerebral, right, which mm-hmm. is uh, – um, I don't know if that's a concern generally. Or maybe he was he was too nice of a guy and would not have a – 
would not have an edge to him that was necessary to. Right. Yeah, I've heard that that sort of gets tossed about about uh, a lot of a lot of different players. The college guys in particular. Mm, I don't know if it's necessarily applied to college guys. I think it's just a general thing. Okay. I mean, I guess you could say you know Montuela was a was a Duke guy, and maybe the excessive serb reality out of you know is sort of uh goes in lockstep with his attendance at duke but i you know i i don't know about that i know that uh, that Montuela is very nice that he's been very accommodating to persons of the media here in arizona who are interested in tracking his career mm-hmm. uh and but beyond that you know i don't know i i wrote about the way he looked and extended where his pitching coach had to constantly tell him, you know, to confidently pull the ball down because mm-hmm. uh, it seemed as though he was a little bit tentative coming back from his surgery, and I was hurt again. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I don't know if that uh, lends evidence to what you're trying to say. Yeah, but I, I think there are certain people who have personalities that are suited for the professional grind, but that they don't necessarily have to be anywhere close to one another as far as personality Go. I see what you're saying. Yeah, you know it's what I I understand about Sherman Johnson that he has a great that he has got great makeup. Okay, loves baseball, loves it. Good. Yeah, I'm not going to say he eats and breathes it unless I'm speaking metaphorically because he eats food like normal and he breathes, mm. you know, Earth's atmosphere. So that's like it's something I regret saying just now because I don't think it's either amusing or accurate. All right. Um, what would we say? Futures game? Yeah. You were there. It was my first one. Oh, okay. And it's it's daunting. It's pretty intense. San Diego in general is, was very intense over the weekend. I was only there for like 36 hours. Mm-hmm. And it was quite a whirlwind. Did you follow the New York Times 36 hours in San Diego? Two no, I didn't. You didn't? No. Okay. And... Um, you were at the game, no? You were at the game, and you were at, uh, I believe I saw you, um, I saw some batting practice video that you submitted. On Twitter, yeah. i got to cut that up and get it on YouTube yet. To the public, yeah. I saw, was it Clint Frazier was looking at someone's home run? Maybe Cam? No. Daz? Uh, Dylan, Dylan Cousins. Dylan Cousins. I knew there was a Z in there, yeah. Um... I guess yeah, it was, it was interesting to see how everyone deals with futures game batting practice because you have to really bear down on everybody in the cage for, you know, two hours. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, like, J.J. Cooper from Baseball America has, he makes, like, an aerial chart of the stadium and charts where everyone is hitting balls out. Oh, really? During BP. And he and Jim Cow. Oh, there's gonna be a lot of name dropping. In, yeah, that's fine. Do what you podcast, need to do. Just like, uh, and he and Jim Callis were like double checking with each other and sort of watching BP together to make sure they didn't miss anything like that. And um, so this is this information. They, they they believe this is information that will be of some use to them. I mean, this this specific data about uh, essentially batted ball location and batting practice. I uh, I don't know if it's. Useful. I think it's interesting and fun. That's the impression you got, though, is that they were being—they were careful to record it. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fair. I mean, I, that's, I don't think you're, you're telling tales out of school. 
but yeah, there's just a lot of media out around the, the cage for BP. And, you know, I don't like to go down onto the field for BP and stand up close to the cage because I think uh, it's like cheating almost uh, because the scouts don't get to do that. But you almost have to and stuff like this just to get a, a look into the cage. Otherwise, there's just people blocking it. Right. Uh, and, you know, you're just down there and there are people around you. I talked to this, about this in my chat. You know, AJ Preller's in the dugout and Peter Gammons is 10 feet away from you and you are forced to point your camera at Tra- Travis uh, Demerit in the batting cage and watch him take a, a lousy BP. Yeah. Instead of like going and introducing yourself to people who've been highly influential, in so there's a lot of stim- there's influence. a lot of stimulus. Yeah, yeah, uh, and just like security in general, there was really beefed up and hard to to get around and and deal with, and it was just it was not quite what I expected. It was a lot of fun, and mm-hmm. I got a lot of good stuff uh, to write about, but um, but it was definitely different than anything I've ever been part of. The name I saw cited most frequently um, due to or, or in the Futures game, re, with regard to the Futures game, was Alex Reyes, San Diego, uh, Saint, sorry, St. Louis Cardinals yeah. prospect Alex Reyes. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess what, m- uh, exclusively for arm speed? Is that why I was seeing it? Well, that was a lot of it. He did touch 101. Mm-hmm. He was like 96 to 101 with with run. <laughs> yeah. Great. Um. And yeah, you know, he had trouble finishing his curveball on Sunday. It was better last fall. I put a 55 on it last fall after seeing him several times. The he just wasn't finishing. Yeah, the curveball. Actually, the, the the few that he threw that looked good were the one, especially the one that he struck out da- uh, Dansby Swanson with, were ones that he tried to locate more to his glove side. He really could get around sort of the side of the baseball and create a tighter spin. Uh, like two plane spin as opposed to like the 12 six movement that it looked like he was trying to get on, uh, on other curveballs that he was trying to locate to his arm side, like backdoor curveballs to left handed hitters. You know, I, I don't know if, if you're aware of this or not, but Eno Saris huh. wrote a piece, I'm going to say earlier in the baseball season, so maybe I'm thinking April, mm-hmm. about, uh, about how breaking balls Perhaps especially those, I don't know if I'm, if I'm being honest here or not, especially those which are apt to uh, exhibit some sort of uh, lateral movement. Uh, breaking ball, Those sorts of breaking balls do break differently when they're going on the one hand to the arm side and on the other hand to the glove side. No, I think that's, yeah, I think that's correct, and I think it's sort of intuitive mm-hmm. uh, that you just, when you're trying to, to move the baseball to that side of the, the strike zone, that you can sort of create more horizontal spin on it. Right. Because uh, you can sort of commit more to getting, you know, your hand across the ball to move it that way. And by definition, it, it makes it, unless you, unless you actually changed your, unless the pitcher were to change his place on the mound, mm-hmm. of course... His mechanics. I mean, it might not be perceptible to a batter, or maybe all but the you know the very the very best batters. But there's going to his arm's going to end up in a different place. Mm-hmm. It has to because he's he's um, he's throwing the ball to a different location. Well, it seems uh, it does seem intuitive, although uh, perhaps unless you've seen it uh, uh, borne out expressly. In this case, what, what I saw by Eno. Um, you you know you one might not actually think about it. Yeah. Yep. 
but that was that was Reyes though. Is he? Yeah. Is he? Uh, so you said you no. Know, what was the curveball like in the futures game? I don't know if you, even if he threw. It was it. Uh, it was inconsistent. You know, the one that he threw that I thought was really good was at uh, eighty miles an hour. Was that one to Swanson that he that had more slider sort of two plane action on it away from Swanson than the other ones that I just pulled out my notes from last fall league and have him uh, locating a backdoor breaking ball with much more consistency than he showed on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's important to have that. I think every time I'm in to see a big leaguer pitch that he has a backdoor breaking ball that he can throw consistently for strikes. I think it's a pretty necessary thing to succeed as a starter. Um, but I don't, I don't think I'm not worried about Reyes. Uh, you know, he's shown it in the past. I think, you know, it was two innings on Sunday that we saw, so I'm not worried about that. The thing that really impressed me about Reyes, though, I mean, I know he was up to 101 and stuff, but um, he backdoored two change-ups to right-handed hitters. Okay. Like, he ran them off the outside corner and then back onto it again. Sure. Twice. Like, it was the same location, uh, two hitters in a row, I think. That was not a thing that uh, I've seen from him before. It's not a thing that I've gotten on reports. It, uh, but he did it twice. Um, so that was uh, that was definitely a thing. And this is a new development. What do you do if? Uh, and I, I mean, I'm sure that there are. One could find an, an empirical to answer to this. Uh, and whatever answer you give me, I'm sure will be sort of uh, anecdotally empirical, if that makes sense. A sort of hybrid mm-hmm. of the two, but. What do you do if you're an organization with a pitcher like Reyes, who has clearly great stuff, yeah, um, great natural tools, and is getting lots of swings and misses in the minor leagues, but simultaneous to that, uh, I guess regardless where he's landing um, for a grade in, on the command control spectrum, he's regardless he's walking a lot of people. Yeah, and he's. But the thing is, like, he's 21 at AAA. There's there's really nowhere else for him to go. You can't Mm. leave him. I assume you can't leave him at AAA for years. Is it just at a certain point you're like, well, clock's up. He's a reliever now. Uh, I think. I think the avenue I would take in that sort of situation is you bring him up, you make him your long relief type. You know that sort of relief pitcher that doesn't exist anymore mm-hmm. that pitches, you know, 100 innings a year and you space it out so that, you know, you're not overtaxing the arm on back-to-back days. And you give him, make sure that he's face, facing enough hitters that he's a chance to develop. You know, he's not just coming in and blowing guys away in an inning at a time. Uh, you're pushing him two or three innings at times to give him the reps that are needed to try to develop starter's command and sort of have him caddy as a long reliever at the big league level for a while and, and see if you can, you know, simultaneously coax starters command out of him while having some sort of value for your big league team. Because this stuff is so good that he could probably provide the big league team with some value right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think he's going to be 96 to 101 for seven innings every five days. Uh, I think he'll probably be more 95, 97 like he was last fall. But, uh, but yeah, in short stints, I think, you know, just those three pitches could be devastating and you just try to work with it and let your big league pitching coach have at him and, 
uh, hope that something more comes up in that than what he's doing at AAA. Um, we're talking about Reyes. I don't think that time is nigh, though. I think I think we, you know, we're probably another year away from something like that. Not nigh. Is it, no. It's not nigh. Is that the point you're trying to make? Mm-hmm. I think yeah, the patience is important, and this is also uh, a prospect who's been suspended and lost developmental time, and is still at AAA at, at 21. Right. Now, I'm going to ask you at some point in this conversation. Uh, almost certainly about Andrew Benatendi and Alex Bregman. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of them were present at the Futures game. I will also, because of another post that Eno Cirrus uh, has written just today, on the day we're recording just today, on Phil Bickford and Joe Musgrove. Mm. I'm going to ask you about them. But first, what I want to ask... Well, first, I want to tell you, Willie Calhoun was the player who was 175. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, and he did not appear on any other top 100 list entering the season. Okay. Um um, I, oh yeah. Which I would have agreed with, by the way. Okay, that's fine. Mm. Oh, yeah, just uh, in general, from the Futures game, uh, did anyone surprise you? That's always, I mean, that's a dumb, simple-minded Not question. Not a dumb question. Simple-minded question, but is there, anyth- is there anyone who was markedly better or worse than the reports you had currently? Uh, if I just go down the list and forgive me for not having some polished answer for this, I'm just looking at my notes. This is a freeform conversation, Eric. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm not asking you to prepare this. I'm trying to be professional. Yeah. And sound good. No, it's great. And talk pretty for the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Hunter Renfro, I thought there was more effort to the swing than I uh, had noted previously. I'm yeah. a little bit more concerned about how long-term swing and miss issues there because of some of the head violence in the swing. There's just, just an effort swing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ryan Healy defense at third base did not look good during in and out. Um, I talked to some people about him because he's sort of you know popped up a little bit. He's having some consistent success. It's big power. He was hitting uh, balls in the second deck out there in left field just beneath the video board at Petco. But people think the swing is kind of grooved uh, and that they're not real sure there's a lot of bat control there. It might be sort of that mistake-hitting, Darren Ruff type of uh, mm-hmm. offensive skill set. Uh, not everyone's real confident that's going to keep playing, though the power is, is very much for real. Uh, Chance Cisco, who hit that three-run homer to, uh, the opposite way, like just left of center field during the game, uh, looked, uh, you know, I have in my BP notes that he's, uh, his wrists are weak through contact and that I don't expect there to be uh, a lot of power. And then he homered in the game. So that's fun. Uh, you know, and, and as far as, uh, you know, some of the, the more surprising in a good way type guys, uh, Ronald Guzman. Oh, we discussed Guzman. Yeah, we did. We talked about him. As part of that 2011 IFA class. Yep. Uh, it seems as though he's found something that he's comfortable with as far as his swing goes. There's a lot of monkeying with his setup and his just overall approach to hitting last season, and it, it seems as though he's found something that he's comfortable with, and he looked uh, very good on Sunday, so that was nice to see. Let me uh, ask you... Let me ask you um, the, over the last week, last yeah. uh, calendar week, I don't know if that's a term, uh, August Fergustrom 
has written both about Jake Lamb and also Tyler Naquin. Mm-hmm. Naquin? Naquin? Naquin. Okay. And they uh, both have exhibited unprecedented power, mm-hmm. uh, deviating wildly from their established records, and both have also exhibited new swings, very similar swings it looks like, based on those sorts of principles that you find uh, Jose Bautista exhibiting, for example, the newest version of Daniel Murphy, um, et cetera, et cetera. This, this sort of player whose focus becomes very much pole heavy, mm-hmm. who's hitting a, um, uh, and who's, who's getting greater batted ball distance, et cetera. I was just curious as to how, how quickly for you as someone who, and I'm using you as a proxy for a knowledgeable prospect analyst. Okay. I want you to know that. This is, uh, this is, uh, I, I respect your body of knowledge and your, the relationships you've created. That's what I'm trying to say. How, how quickly, if at all, does that sort of information get disseminated if it's occurring at the minor leagues? If it even occurs at the minor leagues? Or perhaps this is something that, um, this is, this is an example of two players who are benefiting from major league instruction. Right. So how quickly would you learn about something like that? Or is it just, uh, is it just... It depends if you, it's just, it's somewhat random. You know, you cast a wider net and stuff like that sort of filters to you quicker than it would if you didn't talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. The more people you end up talking to and uh, if you're asking the right sort of questions or finding out who you need to be asking about. Uh, that can lead you to asking the proper questions that get you this sort of information. But it's, uh, it's hard to put a typical timetable on things. Uh, and for me, I think, you know, it's probably split 50-50 with the stuff like, uh, you know, mechanical changes to swings. I learn about that half from in-person evaluation and half from, you know, other people telling me. Uh, and the plan as I grow and mature is to uh, sort of shift that more toward the latter than the former because it's just more efficient to do things that way. Yeah. Uh, so it's hard for me to tell you how long information like that takes to disseminate, mm-hmm. at least specifically to me. Uh, and uh, it's also for teams, it depends on the scout's contacts with that player. If you're a scout who's never seen Tyler Naquin before and you're scouting Cleveland, you might not have any sort of context to to say to yourself, oh, Tyler Naquin has made a change. Uh, so it's um, it's a varied question, and the teams that are better at scouting and learning that stuff find that, find that out quicker uh, than the other ones do. Yeah, right. I, well, I suppose it would um, – yeah, it seems like it could be very subtle because I, I don't know. I certainly can't. I certainly would not have known to look for Tyler Naquin's swing adjustments had, well, first of all, had had August Fagerstrom not written about it, which which required uh, him to notice the fact that Naquin was, you know, hitting for considerably more power than he had previously, and to ask the question, to begin to ask the question, yeah, is this anything, you, you know, is it based on anything mechanical at all? Having and then having. Both the video evidence and also, you know, various other sorted, you know, heat map data at which he could look. So it required sure. even having all of the objective tools and the numbers uh, at ready at hand. It was difficult probably to to identify that. 
yeah, I think the the hardest part is tr- is figuring out who to ask that question about by identifying information that oftentimes isn't uh, traditional scouting observation. Yeah, like I Josh, think that, I uh, that with Josh Bell. Like you and I, when Josh Bell got called up, I was like, "Hey, I'm going to write a Josh Bell call up piece." You notice that I haven't submitted one yet to editing? <laughs> yeah, I, know, I did notice that. <laughs> yeah, do, do you do you want to know why? Uh, it's be- because his year to year splits are bizarre. Mm-hmm. His right handed swing has always been less aesthetically pleasing from a scouting perspective than his left handed swing, and but his his splits year to year fluctuate. Sometimes that makes sense on paper that his right-handed swing is uh, more undesirable and sometimes it doesn't. And so I was all set to write about that uh, and then I checked the his splits year to year and I can't just in good conscience write that his right-handed swing is not as good. I can't do it because it just doesn't, it hasn't played that way on paper consistently. So now I'm looking to see, like I've just been going back and trying to find evidence that supports uh, the point you want to make. <laughs> statistical fluctuations. Like yeah. why is this happening? Why is this a thing? He's made a, lot of, he's made a lot of contact in recent years. I, I guess mm-hmm. I hadn't realized that. Yeah, I mean he was always a high contact prospect. That mm-hmm. draft year, he was 2011 draft. That Pirates 2011 draft was Nuts. That was Garrett Cole, Bell, and I think Glass now all in the same draft. Um, but yeah, Bell got five million in the second round. That'll never happen again uh, because his parents wanted him to go to college. The family was pretty well off. They wanted the kid to get an education. I think his mom taught at Texas, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, and she wanted him to go there. Uh, but it's hard to turn down five million dollars. So. Um, he matriculated to Bradenton instead of Texas. But, uh, but yeah, he's always been like a middle of the order bat type of prospect. It was just sort of a rare, most advanced high school bat in that draft class. Is he, uh, is he a first baseman exclusively? Cause I think now, he has. It's, he was, a he was an outfielder initially. And just because of Pittsburgh's needs, once Bell came to the fall league, they had him start working at first base. And he was atrocious in the fall league here. Like he, he was probably the worst defensive player uh, I've ever seen in the fall league. Which is, you know, it's supposed to be a relatively advanced league for prospects. There's not, you know, it's a high level baseball finishing school for these guys. But he was horrible over there. Just everything. I think there were some games where he made three or four errors. Uh, and as an outfielder. No, as a first baseman, his, just upon they sent him here and put him at first base for the first time here in fall league because mm-hmm. you know they had Marte and Polanco and McCutcheon and Meadows on the way and it just didn't make sense to leave him in the outfield, especially when the bat was approaching doneness. So uh, they you know moved him to first base and I think he got his first taste of it a little bit right before Fall League and then came here with having played out on maybe a half dozen games there. And it was just awful. And I think things have gotten better there. They're uh, serviceable now, but uh, I think it's a barrier still for him to have regular playing time, the defense. Right. Or at least Clint Hurdle's confidence in it is a barrier. Right. He also, he also, he also has Adam Frazier blocking him in the outfield. Adam Frazier, Eric mm-hmm. Wagenhagen. Okay. Fixture among the French Five the last couple of years. 
So there you go. Uh, <laughs> uh, let me say, <clears throat> I was recently reviewing, I had occasion to, I don't know what the occasion was, but I had occasion to review those players who were currently in the minor leagues, but whose projections were particularly optimistic. Okay. Um, and chief among those players, this is not shocking information, but uh, I suppose it it can lead to a conversation about these two players. One of them is Andrew Benatendi, center fielder, center field prospect for the Red Sox, and Alex Bregman, uh, shortstop, or at least talented infield prospect for the Houston Astros. Andrew Benatendi, I'm starting with him be- for alphabetical reasons. That's all I, w- I want to say. Andrew <laughs> okay. Benatendi, of course, Golden Spikes winner. And he has, he has, uh, he is projected to uh, record a batting line 3% better than major league average. And, um, were, you know, where he called up, that's what Steamer says, the Steamer projection system. And uh, what I'm, I'm coming to you just with that information, saying that I have observed that. And what I would like from you, Eric, mm-hmm. is to uh, report on the feasibility of Andrew Benatendi as a major leaguer starting today. I, I believe that it is feasible. You do? Yeah. Um, he's really good. <laughs> he's really good. And he yeah. hasn't, well, I don't know. So he hasn't failed in the minors. Is that a, is that a problem? I know that uh, when I would talk with Kylie, you would say, well, sometimes you do want a guy to fail once just so he has. Or is that yeah. something you say once a guy has failed and you're like, well, we need I think to- <laughs> more important than failure is uh, having seen that the prospect can overcome it in some way. Uh, I think dealing with failure mentally is an important thing. I think some guys can do it innately. Others probably takes it takes some practice, and others will never be able to do it. Uh, same thing with that quote-unquote closure mentality. I think that's a thing as well. Uh, some guys perceive the ninth inning as just a scarier time to pitch, and some of them get over it, some of them don't. Some of them never care. It's, you know just the thing that exists in human being. Um, but yeah, like if a guy fails and then makes an adjustment because they had to do that, I think that's really encouraging and important. Like Michael Franco. Michael Franco was awful uh, at Lakewood for half a year, made some adjustments, tore up in the second half. That's just a positive thing that he was able to adjust and change the way he did things to succeed. Uh, that Benintendi hasn't yet had to do that probably adds some element of risk to his overall projection because we haven't seen that he's been able to do that. But I think on the other hand, the the fact that he hasn't had to is also a good thing because he's just already really good. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but yeah, I, I understand some apprehension when it comes to projecting someone who hasn't had to make any adjustments yet. But yeah, I've seen Benintendi a few times now over the last couple weeks and been very impressed. Where did you... Was he playing uh, with Lehigh Valley or something like that? Uh, he was... He's with Portland. Yes, I understand he's with Portland. Uh, and was at Trenton. Trenton, okay. Yeah, which is uh, probably my least favorite place to go see baseball games mm-hmm. in the country. But, uh, but yeah, like he's, he, it's, he doubled down both lines for me. Uh, he adjusts to breaking balls while they're in mid-flight. You know, you can see him making, uh, sort of adjusting the way his body times the pitch. 
in mid-flight, which I think is a special hitter quality. I don't know if there's ever going to be more than 40 or 45 game power there. The swing is just not geared to hit for that kind of power. Oh, let me ask you about that. So the, so it's interesting you say that in terms of game power because the... Specifically to home runs. Right, yeah, yeah. And the data, the data that has been made available by StatCast has allowed us, has given um, nerds some language with which to discuss that, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're always looking for, <clears throat> in terms of game power, right? You're, I guess it's a combination of two things. One is uh, exit velocity, right? Right. And then the other is launch angle. And I think the like the ideal launch angle is like 20 to 35 degrees, roughly. And then you're looking for batted balls above 90 miles per hour, I suppose. Something mm-hmm. like that. Those are those are not quoting ranges. Anyway, it, so if, if you're talking about Benatendi and maybe something that it peaks at average game power, is that because you see a lack of velocity off the bat, or is it because you see him not necessarily hitting it in that range, uh, that that the ideal launch angle range, as as yeah. frequently as some players? It's the latter. And I'm not sitting there with a protractor or anything down no, no, no. and like holding it up. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's more of a launch angle thing and maybe not as much a launch angle of the baseball thing as it is a, uh, expected launch angle based on the bat path. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is just, you see it more often. You can see the hitters swinging more often than you see them actually make contact. Uh, so it's more of projecting based on that than it is watching them hit enough balls in play to say, oh, I don't see a consistent launch angle that's home run friendly. Right. Right. No, no, no. That makes sense too. But I suppose also with the bad path, you could begin to make – there are obviously other equations you can make, right? Because those hitters – there are certain hitters who might be more susceptible to um, hitting infield fly balls. And there's mm-hmm. a very strong correlation between – or striking out. Or, well, striking out, yes, that's mm-hmm. another one. But uh, in terms of infield fly balls, that helps you, I think, to learn more about what a player's batting average might be on balls in play, right? The sure. very strong, I guess it's an inverse correlation, the more infield fly balls, the lower the BABIP. And uh, so if you were to look at, we're just using Benatendi here as a kind of case study, would you say it would be roughly in the average range so far as that's concerned? Or is he hitting solid line drives and ground balls? Uh, I think it's I think it's solid line drives and ground balls. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'd say he, I would expect him to have a uh, an above average major league BABIP, mm-hmm. something like in the three fifteen to three twenty range. How is that? Uh, you know what's amazing? What? His steamer projection right now for BABIP three eighteen. Okay, <laughs> that's weird. Like, I'm not looking at that. No, no, I know you're not looking at that. But <laughs> but, but I'm, my point is that. There is always something that's just there's something pleasing when the when, when you know when the um, empirical data and well when, when the quantitative analysis and the qualitative when they come together like that it's beautiful mm-hmm. yeah I, I like it as well yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, with regard to Alex Bregman you have mentioned, I think probably because the internet has mentioned that there appears to be some chance that he will be a major leaguer by this weekend or during the weekend. 
Yeah, there's, you know, rumors have started to circulate that Houston is about ready to bring him up. And there was some speculation that it might be as soon as this weekend, although I think that's been tamped down in the last few hours now, even just before the podcast. But yeah, uh, he's another guy who just kind of looks ready, ready to hit, certainly. And is that, is the move there, if that did happen, would that be sending AJ Reed down back to the minors and then oh, calling him? Huh? I don't know. Oh, you don't know. Yeah. Okay. Not sure. I, I, it's kind of, I think it'd be kind of awkward to bring him up and demote someone, someone, even if it's not necessarily to the minor leagues. But to, you know, sit Luis Valbuena down, who's having a really good year. I think it's kind of weird to bring Bregman up and force Valbuena to the bench, even if you don't expect him to have that, the sort of second half that he's had. Right. In the first half, uh, I don't really like the message it sends to your players that uh, you don't care that they're having success. No, so, no, and that, that could have ripple effects in yeah. other in other ways, yeah. So where he would play if he came up, I don't know. I suppose Valbuena could end up playing more first base. I'm not, I don't know. I'm not sure what uh, what they would do. I saw one report along those lines. AJ Reed's first uh, 40 or so plate appearances in the majors have not been uh, without their troubles. Yeah, he's had two home runs, but he's also recorded strikeouts in uh, nearly forty percent of his plate appearances. <laughs> yeah, um, I've never been a Reed guy, even in college, just wasn't for me. But I think that's more of I acknowledge that that has a lot to do with my own biases against first base only prospects. Mm-hmm. It's just not uh, the type of player that I'm attracted to. Is there a first base? Well, well of course, because there's nowhere for them to go. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. There's just a lot. There's a there's a lot of pressure on the bat, and it's hard. It's hard to to clear that bar. It's really hard. Yeah. Major league pitching is really good. So um, is there who out of the all all the minor leagues rookie eligible players? Who's the? Uh, now again, this I'm putting you on the spot. So feel free hmm. to uh, to squirm out of this question if you need to. Uh, who is the first base prospect about whom you're most enthusiastic? Do you think? <sighs> <laughs> um, you know, I guess for the last year or so, the the three guys that I've liked are have been Dom Smith, mm-hmm. Josh Bell, and to a lesser degree, Bobby Bradley. Bobby, who I'm writing Bra- now, obviously. Bobby, yeah. Bobby Bradley. Bobby, Bobby Bradley. Brad- Cleveland. Yes, Bobby Bradley. Uh, the first two names mm-hmm. I know, I know those players. The last one I'm much, I'm much less well acquainted with him. Tell me, give us a brief rundown on Bobby Bradley. Uh, third rounder in 2014, out of high school, uh, and dominated his first. Pro season down here in Arizona in the uh, Arizona League, uh, and it's he has it's plus raw, but it's really pull heavy. And what's special about him, and uh, you know, you'll read this in my report later today. It's just a weird innate ability to create lift. He has a really uphill swing, and I'm sure it. Uh, shows in his strikeout numbers too 
Uh, but uh, seeing him take BP at the Cal and Carolina League All-Star game was crazy. Like, he, hit, he must have hit, I think, like 10 or 11 balls out. Not because they were just these towering blasts that, you know, Giancarlo Stanton hits or Joey Gallo hits. It's not like that. It's just he knows how to impact the baseball in a way that creates that uh, ideal home run sort of watch angle that you're talking about. It's, just, it's weird mm-hmm. how consistently he does it. Um, and, you know, just having seen him a bunch over the last few years, I think there's 20-plus home run power there, even if he's only going to hit 230, 240. Uh, and, you know, just, you just spent a lot of time trying to weigh how much... Uh, um, you're allowed to strike out before you're not a good major leaguer anymore. Right. And I think this is one of those prospects that sort of tests your ability to project that sort of thing. So where does he where does he fall like on the Joey Gallo scale, for example, in terms of the if you're you have uh, two sliders, right? One of mm-hmm. them is you know the, the power slider, and the other is the contact slider. Where does he yeah. where does he fit? You know, uh, one to eleven compared to Gallo. He's probably—it's not quite as extreme from the. So it's probably somewhere in, uh, but not in the middle by any means. It's like just inside those boundaries, I think. Okay. Uh, I think as far as relevant power hitting prospects go, uh, that he—if you're you know, talking about guys who have some polarity between the hit tool and the power. Uh, he's probably second on the list, at least off the top of my head. Behind behind Gallo, presumably. Behind Gallo, yeah. yeah. What about uh, sort of? No, who's the uh, who's the fellow with a hyphenated name? No, it's not hyphenated. Adam Brett Walker. Where does Adam? Oh yeah, Brett, that's another. Where does Adam Brett Walker, Walker the Twins prospect, fall here? Hold on, let me write this down because this is an interesting idea f- to write about. Okay. Like these type of eyes and sort of scale them. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. All right. I guess you could also yeah. you could do like the hit like you could do power minus hit right and see what the largest gaps are mm-hmm. in terms of the grades. But yeah, so Adam Brett Walker currently uh, with Minnesota's AAA affiliate, forty percent strikeout rate. Last year the AA affiliate, thirty five percent strikeout rate. Yeah, Walker Walker's weird too because um, in Folly last year it was a twenty arm. And the swing was so completely unusable that I compete him. He's an or guy for me. All right. So he would be probably, yeah, I mean, somewhere in that continuum between Bradley and Gallo, uh, but sort of lost to the blind eternity is the prospect of him. I don't, I don't consider him much of a prospect. I mean, he is because of the power. Right. But Wait, I, you I said lost to the blind problems. eternity? Yeah. Did, did you say lost to the blind eternity? I did. That's beautiful. Where's that from? Like he's on that he's on the scale somewhere, like this that we're talking about here with with uh, these power hitting guys who struck out a ton. But he's you know sort of fading away, uh, like uh, Back to the Future on that picture that Marty has where his his siblings are sort of disappearing. Yeah. Because uh, I don't you know really consider Adam Brett Walker much of a, of a prospect because I just don't think he's ever going to hit. And I think that it's left field only. Although people at the Futures game told me that some of the arm strength is back. Oh, so you would uh, say, so you're talking about it being back at the Futures game? <laughs> you did just literally cite that movie, too. 
Do you think I subconsciously phrased things that way, or do you think that was just an accident? Where the f*** all did you get the phrase, lost to the blind eternity? I'm afraid to say. I'm afraid to say. Is it from a Ghostface Killer song? For fear of being persecuted for my uh, extreme dorkiness. All right. Well, you can, it's, um, hey, you can give your answer off the air if that makes you feel comfortable. I will. Yeah. I'll take people my answer. People, I'm sure, will be Googling it right now, and they'll know. Okay. But it's, All right. I'll let them do that. Um, listen, I was going to ask you about Bickford Musgrove. Do not have time for that because I have you to don't, Do you want to talk about him for, for like, let's do Bigford. Let's do Bigford. No, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Five minutes of Bigford? No. I Listen, I only got... Li- he's a weird kid. Everyone says he's a weird kid. I got three minutes <laughs> tops, and we have not we have not touched on Max Schrock at all. That's okay. okay. I think Schrock should be like our Lindsey Buckingham uh, <laughs> sort of topic. Okay. Uh, okay. Or we never quite get to him, right. and he always is disappointed. Okay, fine. Uh, so tell, so give your... give your, uh, Apologies to Max Schrock, who we just didn't have time to get to. Uh, next week, though, or two mm-hmm. weeks from now, well, I'm sure we'll talk about him. Yeah. What is... Is it a League of Legends reference? No. Okay, good. Let's continue. <laughs> you really said that angrily. I sort of know what that is. I know that's like a video game people play competitively. It's very big at Arizona State. Yeah, I bet it is. Yeah. Everything's big yeah. there if it concerns young people. Listen, all right, so go Bickford. Bickford, along with Joe Musgrove... Was featured in a piece by you know Saris, which I helped contribute to. Yes, yes, I know. That's why we're bringing it up part partly. I do work. I know you do. So, so Bickford, what what he spiked in terms of velocity in high school, and then it seems like it mellowed out. Um, he was that summer. That summer of showcase. Before his, like his rising senior, he was like 88 to 92. And then his senior year, was like 90-94. Blue Jays took him first round, didn't sign him. Uh, rumors are they didn't like his medicals, but he's never had any sort of surgery or anything like that. And there are teams who kind of know what's going on there and others who are still curious about what's going on there. Um, pitched freshman year at Cal State Fordham, split time between the bullpen and the rotation, was pretty good. Not unusual. Very good. Not unusual for a freshman to do that, even if he's going to end up a starter, right? Right. right. Okay. Uh, then went to the Cape as a rising sophomore, sophomore. And what's really good, capitalized on the spike in stock, went to College of Southern Nevada for his sophomore year, so he'd be draft eligible. That's when I started to see him a lot, a lot, a lot, because I'm right here. Uh, he was like 90, 94. He reached back for 95. Sometimes fastball command was really good. Slider was like 78 to 81 and more frisbee, horizontal-ish than uh, vertical. Giants drafted him. Uh, he's fine. Velo was down to the Futures game. Uh, as far as fastball is concerned, he was like 89, 92. But Slider has gotten harder and more vertically oriented, sort of uh, the Brad Lidge uh, type of slider movement. Not that It's not that good of a slider. It's not prime edge, but it has that sort of shape and velocity to it, like 83, 85. Uh, and uh, the command on Sunday wasn't good, but it was one inning on a national stage, so uh, you know, that's, there could be a lot of reasons for that. Uh, and, you know, it's just... Um, 
I've never seen him throw a changeup. I've seen him pick like eight times now, and I've never seen a changeup. Apparently, he's using one more this season. Uh, and I think that he's uh, got sort of natural relationship with the baseball. That's good for a cutter, and I think we'll have that eventually. But yeah, it's just uh, people are concerned about the way the velocity was down uh, on Sunday. And Eno wrote about him developing, uh, and uh, you should go read that. <laughs> That's everything I have on. That's everything I have on Bigford. That's just that, you know, we emptied my brain on Bigford. That's your report on Bigford. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hey. Always lots of fun. Eric. Uh-huh. Are you going to get your, your doormat now? Yeah, i got to go to drive to Cape Porpoise to get my doormat. Okay. I'm going to keep working on this uh, Indi- Indian's property Indian piece. Process, yeah. I'll take, I'll, we'll, I will forward you a an image... Of the doormat. Okay. I look uh, forward to, to your doormat picture. And I will look. I will take your answer off the air with regard to Lost the Blind Attorney. Okay. I have attempted to Google it in clandestine fashion. I have not found the exact phrase. But anyway, in the meantime, thank you, Eric Longenhagen. You're welcome, Carson. That has been lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs> <laughs>